Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, and welcome to a very special CoronaCast edition of Sentimental Garbage. My name is Karen O'Donoghue, and I'm a writer, a podcaster, and someone who has their usual podcasting schedule upended due to a global pandemic, meaning that I can't be in the same room with any of my planned guests. Joining me is author and extremely game co-host in the upcoming apocalypse, Ella Rithbridger. Hi! Hi! How are you doing? Hi! I like my promotion. I used to be guest, and then I was aunt of the pod, and now I'm co I think co-host is befitting of your changing circumstances, right? You've been on so many episodes of this podcast at this point. I think at the point that we're in an apocalypse, I should be allowed to be co-host I think for the duration of the apocalypse. Totally. I think co-host at large, perhaps. It's like you're visiting... I love to be a co-host at yeah. large. And I bought a microphone for this, you know? You know what? You, you've That's invested. Co-host. So for the next couple of episodes, God willing that we are able to work the technology, um, we are going to be doing something slightly different with Sentimental Garbage. As I already said, um, all of the guests that I had planned had to cancel because of the law of them not being able to leave their house. Um, And uh, we decided to do something. and, And honestly, like... I know remote podcasts are a thing and people do them, but because remote podcasts depend so much on like knowing another person's kind of conversational cues, you kind of have to know people quite well in order to do them very well. Do you know what I mean? Um, So I didn't want to go walking into strangers' ears with people I'd never met. So I thought I would just ask you to um, do like a mini series within the podcast of like books we read and talk about all the time and we just want to share with the world regardless of sort of genre or sentimentality or garbage equalities. I'm very pleased to be asked. It's very exciting. I was doing nothing else. (laughs) Whole load of nothing. Um, Whole load of nothing. I was just going to be, I mean, I'm sitting on my bedroom floor right now. My plan was to sit on the sitting room floor if I wasn't here (laughs) so you know I'm ready and willing for podcasts and also I like to talk about books I like to talk about books that are you know slightly less sentimental and slightly less garbagey than those we have discussed previously yeah but like the the emotion the emotional context is always the same in that I always feel the same level of excited about all of them so why don't you tell us a little bit about the book that we're going to be talking about today Uh, We're going to talk about a book called Brother of the More Famous Jack by Barbara Trepido, which is one of those uh, books that people just, when they've read it, they just push it into your hands really silently. It's like, you have to read this book. You have to read this book. You will love this book. It's very difficult to describe because it's just a book about being in love and then not being in love and then you do some other stuff and then some other stuff happens to you and that's your life. I think it's the closest thing thematically that we get to like... um... It's very much a Laurie, Laurie story from Little Women. Do you know what I mean? It's like the thing of being in love with a family Ooh. and the thing that you would do anything to be with that family forever. And while you may go away from them to Europe, actually, which is both true in both books, um, you never really stop being captivated under that spell and finding a home in a family that isn't your own, you know? I think that's so true. Essentially, there's this family. They're called the Goldmans. They are very cool. They're very cool and everyone wants to be part of them and one woman gets to be part of them. They're they're bohemian and they're sexually liberated, but in a way that is very realistic. Yeah. In that the teenage sons are like, Jesus, do you have to do that, parents? And the parents are really in love, but also they kind of fight a lot. It's just so great. Everybody's just very real. it feels extremely true and extremely accurate while also being extremely picturesque. Yes, it's it's like um it's like a complete fantasy, but it's very kind of earthy and gritty at the same time. Um let me do a full plot summary. It's grubby. It's grubby, yes, yeah, it is grubby. Um a full plot plot summary, okay. So Catherine Catherine is an 18-year-old first-year university student who, after meeting the flamboyant and much older John Millet at a bookshop, is asked to join him for 
is asked to join him for a weekend in the country to visit some old friends. When she gets there, she realises it's the home of her university professor, Jacob Goldman. What follows is a love story spanning two decades as Catherine attaches herself to various members of the Goldman family, including Jacob's two sons, Roger and Jonathan, as well as his wife, Jane. Um... I think I, I, there's no other book that I love the first sort of 20 pages of more than this book. Um, because it's one of those wonderful things of like a series of believable coincidences that feel like how real life is. Do you know what I mean? Completely. And the thing is, is it a coincidence? So essentially what happens is John Millett, who is the most magnificent skis. Such really, a skis. He, he picks up beautiful teenagers in bookshops and you realise through the book has been doing this for something like 40 years. Oh yeah, yeah. Age, an ageless he, since he pervert. Was a, an ageless pervert. And he is a pervert. You find out later that he has black satin sheets and he likes women to have baths. <laughs> Which, you know, listeners, if you have black satin sheets and like women to have baths, you do you. That's fine. Don't pick up teenagers in bookshops and tell them you like the Quattro Centro profile oh, because it's creepy. Uh, but he's, he's also such charming. A, he's such a brilliant creep, but it's like, it's the unique everyone... attraction of creepy people, you know? But also, everyone in this book is horrible in various ways. They are horrible in ways that people you know are horrible. Mm. They are believably horrible. There are no characters who do nothing problematic. Mm-hmm. all characters do problematic things from time to time they all do quite horrible and depressing things from time to time Jonathan who establishes himself very near the end of the book as the great romantic hero of the book mm. I think what's the first thing he says the first thing Jonathan the great romantic hero of this book says is Rog that poovy Miller has brought a woman with him have you seen her listen shitface this doll is worth a bloody sight more than the queen's christmas message and he's barefoot in his wellies and then he asks her for her number and she says no and that's very typical of the way this book introduces characters in that you know he's a teenage boy who's quite horrible he's about 2 years younger than Catherine yeah she doesn't, it's not love at first sight. He fancies her. She fancies his older brother, but also kind of his parents. Yeah. And she's also there as the guest of this much older man. And this is basically the... brought her there to embarrass his friend. It's so, it's so perfect and strange, the entire like setup and all the dynamics that ensue because of this weird setup, um, which kind of like dictates so many relationships for like kind of 20 years. So what happens is um, that she goes on a date with John Millett, who's like 40 odd and she's 18, finds it very exciting. She's lived this very suburban life. And then kind of in an Italian restaurant, he's like, oh, I'm supposed to be going down to Sussex to meet some old friends this weekend. Will you come with me? She's never been overnight anywhere with a man. And she's like, sure. And she arrives there and has that kind of moment of mortification where she's like, oh, this is my university professor and his family. This is weird. But also it's this thing where like, she's the same age as their children, but she's being brought in like as a fellow adult. And it's this weird thing because like the boys are very much boys. Like they're like, they're like 15 and 17, she's 18, and all of the adults are in their 30s and 40s. So she belongs with them, but uh, nobody, no, she kind of drifts between the two camps all weekend, and it's so strange. And it's like this thing where... So also, it's also the experience of being, at least for me, that was what it was like for me to be in my late teens. I yeah. had, I felt very much like I was a grown up and the boys of my age were children. So I was thinking about this so much today when I was rereading this and this thing of like, um, it's so much easier for young girl, young women to like be a tourist in the adult world because of our bodies and because of how we're able to dress ourselves and because of our, our currency sexually when we're very young, as opposed to boys who are sort of allowed to stay children and stay kind of boisterous and sort of like outdoorsy and messy and loud for a much, much longer period of time. Like they can basically choose when to become men. Yes. And like, do you remember in when Roger who is the older brother who she is in love with, starts writing to her yeah. and she can't cope with his handwriting. He's gone, he's gone to Africa 
as a sort of English teacher, I think. Like, like an, very gap year foreign language. There, it's, oh, he's on his gap year. He's, yeah. going to, he's on his gap year before he goes to Oxford. And her handwriting is beautiful. Everyone through this book comments on Catherine's handwriting. Yeah. The writing of, you know, I can't remember, they say something like, all, all well brought up women write like that. I think yeah, all middle says. class women write that way. And it's kind of this, this strange... Sorry, if you want to finish your point, please. <laughs> Actually, I think I'm just going to read that bit. Okay. Roger's handwriting was a shock to me. I had until then made the assumption that all superior people were acquainted with the necessity that calligraphic characters were parallel, thick on the downstroke and joined by upward angles of 45 degrees. Roger's handwriting was small, inconsistent and difficult to read. I therefore revised my opinion to the effect that Roger, as the pinnacle of superior man, had license to make his own manners and that his handwriting was the mark of his magnificent disregard for the standards of the world. The truth of the matter was simply that Roger had lousy, undistinguished handwriting. It was a thing he was no good at. And I love that. I love it. And I think I love it in relation to your point about boys don't have to grow up and girls can pass into the adult world Mm -hmm. because she's got she's got the handwriting that Jane has. Jacob points this out later on that all middle class women have this handwriting. She's a woman and Roger has the handwriting of a boy and he's no good at writing. And you know, do you remember the part where she goes to the cinema with Jonathan? Yeah, of course. Because I that uh, she's secret. She's secretly dating Roger. Roger, for reasons, won't tell his parents that he's sleeping with Catherine. Yeah, yeah. Catherine agrees not to tell them. For she's not really sure why. It's, it's, she, she sort of wants to tell them to be to be so that it can be cemented. Like, oh, I am your daughter-in-law. Yeah. But Roger won't tell them because Roger is constantly trying to think of ways to rebel against his family. I'm really conscious talking about this, that there's a lot of characters here. There's a lot of names and we haven't really introduced anybody, but yeah. that's what it feels like to read this book. So there's, John, uh, there's Jacob and Jane who are married. Mm-hmm. There's their friend, John Millet. Yeah. Who, who brings her in. Yeah. There's John Millet who brings in Catherine, but also was in love with Jane at some point. Yeah. But is mostly gay. You know. Yeah, it's, it's it's a very kind of like 70s is... phrasing of being like, oh, he's flexible, he's ambidextrous. It's very like, it's, um, yeah, his, his sort of sexuality is talked about quite a lot in very interesting ways. Yeah, I mean, I don't think of John Miller as bi. Do you think of John no, Millet as bi? No, it's been insane to call him bisexual because it's such a... It's John Millet likes power is the thing. That's the thing about John Millet is I get the impression that John Millet doesn't particularly care if it's young women or young men he is taking advantage of. Yeah, it is. It, there's this very creepy scene where he takes um, the teenage Catherine and the teenage Roger out for a drive to Brighton and he, he sort of... She says something like, oh, this kind of avuncular sense of taking me out on a boarding school treat. And like, he sort of, the thing of like, he, he gets them like steak and chips and, and sort of watches them as if he were deciding who to like, who to take part in first. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's kind of, he just, he loves sort of just like sim- simmering in other people's youth. And he also, even though Jacob is his friend, he loves having this idea that he could take anything that, Jason, that Jacob has at any moment. Do you know what I mean? It's this really weird yeah. male power struggle that like overrides this whole lovely bucolic dynamic. But you do end up loving John Millet. Oh, I yeah. love John Millet. I love him. There is no... He is terrible in a lot of ways, but he's a very real person and he has extremely wonderful redeeming characteristics. And I can't tell you what any of his redeeming characteristics are. <laughs> I just know that I miss John Millet. So... A spoiler is that by the end of the book, John Miller is dead in a very undramatic way. Um, I think probably a really useful thing with this novel, before we get really stuck into talking about it, is if I just quickly introduce the characters, because there are so many, it's so sprawling, they're all so interconnected. And when you read it, you don't feel like this is sprawling. You just feel like they're people and families you've known your whole life. So briefly, there is Jacob Goldman, uh, a university professor, his wife, Jane, Mm-hmm. John Millet, who is a complicated man, we'll talk more about him in a minute, who has brought Catherine in. John Millet has been in love with Jane for a long time and is Jacob's, probably Jacob's best friend. 
and sort of Those weird rival. Weird rival, best friend. Those are the grown-ups. Jacob, Jane, John Millet, and sometimes Catherine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Jane and Jacob have, when the book begins, their son Roger, who is about 17. Mm-hmm. Roger is very sulky. He plays the violin. He gets very angry when other people call it the fiddle. He's extremely pretentious, extremely <sighs> clever. And he's just such a he shithead. He's extremely beautiful. Just but shuts... he's so hot. Okay, yeah, <laughs> I know. It's just He gets he gets less hot, but you have to remember that when he's when he's 17, he's so beautiful. He's so beautiful. He's so beautiful and he can play the violin. Then there is Roger's younger brother Jonathan, who is about 15, 15 or 16. Yeah. Who is just a bit of like a little perv. Oh, he's... I see. I think the thing is, I think this is the key difference why even if both of you, both of us were single at the same time, we would like probably never have a fight over a man. Because <laughs> like I, I immediately... <laughs> because I, I will always... Yeah, from day one, from like page three, I was like Jonathan forever. I like I never thought that Roger was hot at all. I was like this fucking pretentious. He's shit. so beautiful. <laughs> he plays the violin and he talks about God. I love him. I love him. Whereas Jonathan, um, he's such Cass- a skeezy, filthy little gross pervert, and I'm like, yes, <laughs> Jonathan. I love Jonathan. I absolutely yeah, adore yeah. Jonathan. We love them all. Jonathan could get it any time, you know, Jonathan. Yeah. But you couldn't sleep with Roger. Roger, I mean, the whole book essentially is, uh, becomes Catherine thinking, Roger, 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 Roger. Yeah. But Jonathan's there and Roger will never call me back. <laughs> That's the, th- <laughs> oh God. So like. Jonathan is just, but Jonathan starts the book off as a, in his mid-teens He's got bare feet in wellies. The most disgusting thing I can imagine. You can just imagine the sort of clammy suction happening between the sweaty foot and the sweaty welly. Do you know what I mean? Such a horrible... So the first interaction they have is Jonathan says to Catherine, do you want to come fishing? And she looks at Roger, who has shown no interest in her whatsoever. And it's like, no, I will stay here near Roger, who won't speak to me, which is a feeling I distinctly understand. I get it. Um, and she claims that the reason she doesn't want to go is because she would have had to put her feet into the wellies, into the clammy wellies with no socks on. And I really, get, I, I feel like we're really kind of giving you the flavour of this book, which is very much, it's about wellies and not wearing socks and boys, more than one boy and being like, oh no, but. So I guess it is, I guess it kind of fits into the sentimental garbage mould in that way, in that it is a romance. Yeah, oh yeah, very much a romance, just with several different people across a long period of time. Like, it, like it, yeah. I, it always, I know that she, she thing is, she is very captivated by Roger from the moment she meets him, because he is, like, incredibly pretentious, and he plays the violin, and he speaks really archly, and he's really mean to her, and he think and, like, oh, he also, like... I love him. He perfectly, perfectly crystallises all of these, like... Like, she, Catherine's very much a person, like, she's pretty, she's kind of glamorous, but she really hasn't, like, come online yet as a human being, and she really... She really hasn't! She wakes up the weekend she goes and lives with the Goldman, Goldmans, and all of these sort of um, disparate insecurities that she hasn't even been sophisticated enough to feel yet, which is that she's a bit, she's a bit suburban, she's a bit, like, I mean, like, her, her, her mother sort of has, like, a matching set of of, you know, a matching suite of chairs and things. And, like, when, when, there's this horrible scene where she goes back from the Goldman's and then it's, like, this lovely kind of bucolic, filthy, elegant, antique thing. And she goes back to her, her mother's house, which is, like, a two-up, two-down in North London. And, like, how provincial and bougie it is and how, like, she has a doorbell that has, like, a chime. And, like... Jo- like and Roger's like, so horrible about the chime. So horrible about Roger's it. And like, like, oh, your doorbell's flat. Like oh yeah, your your um your doorbells in D minor and like, but what what Roger does to her then he crystallizes all of these insecurities about her just being quite facile and quite suburban and he like really attacks her with them you know, in that way that like that first bad boyfriend is able to do do you know what I mean? And she really never gets over it. No, she never Everything gets over she does it for the rest of her life is trying to prove Roger Goldman wrong. Yeah, 
Yeah, that's that's basically she. She uh, midway through the book, she sort of moves to Italy and has a sort of a passionate affair for many years with like a Italian guy. Yeah, it's like everything she does. Yeah, is like I'm not suburban. I'm actually this woman of the world. I'm this. I'm that. And like riling against, tr- trying to find a woman to grow into, and thinking it might be Jane for a while, and kind of moving on from that. It's just very real. And the thing is, it she does kind of become Jane. But what I what I love about this book more than anything else about it is the fact it's structured in this totally mad way. Yeah. The first half of the book is written... The first two-thirds of the book are written in the past tense, of which most of which is just her meeting this family Yeah. and becoming incredibly close to them. You don't really get to see her becoming close to them. You get to see her meeting them. And then she says something like, and Jane became my dearest friend. Yeah, they, it's, they, they go to the theatre together. They go out in the town together and stuff. And then she's dating, yeah. simultaneously dating her sons. Yeah, but in secret. Yeah. And then she goes to Italy where she falls in love with a fascist. <laughs> yes. He's, he is a fascist. He's, there's no there's no attempt to make that better in the book. She's no. just like, well, he was a big divorce fascist. He loved fascism and hated women. <laughs> I and loved him. And that was sexy. And the thing is, does she love him? I think she thinks it's very sexy. And she loves sex. She loves love. sex. She loves sex and she loves clothes. She loves sex and clothes. And it's so lovely to just have a heroine sometimes who just and, loves sex and clothes. And she's very clothes. smart. And yeah. she's very smart. And she's smart in a way that I love in that she'll just like casually mention something from Jane Austen or just casually quote a bit of Dante. Dante. But she'll always do it in this context of, she says right at the beginning, I have a consuming love affair with clothes. Yeah. And she describes what she's wearing all the time. Totally. When John Millet first meets her and she's wearing the purple football jersey that barely covers her knickers and the sort of net vest yeah. and a little hat over one eye. And, and she, and she, she, like, she refers to it as like, I can put together a suitably vogue look. It's like she yeah. it's so kind of old fashioned and like what's really nice is because like it's a very it's a very literary book and I actually while I have a physical copy, it is a book that I always put on um on audiobook. I have it on my Audible account and like I re-download it all the time and it's it's really, really well performed. I really recommend it. Because um it is a book that is much better spoken out loud because of the... It's written in a really homey, yet very literary way. Like, you trip up over words. I do, anyway. And it's, like, words I don't recognise where I'm like... Bleh. But it's it's really nice that in a, quite a literary, quite packed-out sentences book that you get this heroine who's, like, young and blonde and sexy and loves clothes and sex. Do you know, she's not like this cold, awkward brunette. Do you know what I mean? No, and she's not timid or shy. And she's very hot. And everyone tells her all the time. And she's like, I know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, well, I disagree. Really I literally this on audiobook. I oh, hate really? this on audiobook and love it. Love it to read. But then it's written for me, basically, in the way that I think. It's like downloading. It's like just downloading extra bits of my brain. Really? Like, the style of writing feels very, like this. It feels very natural to me the whole way through. I think it's one. Uh, I think that the the writing style and the voice is really specific, and it's like um, it's it's this weird. I don't know. There's probably lots of literary terminology for what the style is because it's like both very simply and Enid Blytony, but also like very packed with all of this like really detailed like really um florid language what you know what i mean it's like this weird um yeah. uh contrast i just think she's a genius i just love this book so much and it is so dense and there's so much in it and everyone in it is complicated but not in a way that feels contrived they're complicated in the way the people you love most are complicated and i just i just think it's a really beautiful very funny very smart book about how you can love a lot of people in a lot of different ways and she never really gets over roger but fine yeah no one gets over their first love like that's what being in love is that whole... and she doesn't really get over jo- john millet i mean she's kind of still thinking but when she hears right at the end she literally just hears that he's died this character who's been who changed the course of her life you just hear she says something like where's john millet and someone else says dead lung cancer yeah and that's, and it. that's it for yeah john and that's it. And she's sad because he was important, even though he was an old perv. 
<laughs> and tried to give her birth and make her have sex with him on black satin sheets. Yeah. And she's sad. And, you know, Jonathan, who is sexist, and Roger, who is just the world's most pretentious man. He's so cruel. He's such a cruel <laughs> I don't know, I kind of wanted to read... Man. I kind of wanted to read a bit of... Uh, bit of her and Roger because I think it's yeah. so nice. We walk across the field to the right of the house towards a stream. Beyond the stream, which we cross, is a rather morbid little chicken battery belonging to the neighbouring farm and alongside that a blackberry wilderness where we pick and eat. Jane says you can get blackberries without thorns, he says, as he examines a scratch on his wrist. She's going to grow them. Have you always lived here? I say. He shakes his head. Since I was five, he says. He hands me some blackberries, which he has picked from beyond my reach. We used to live in Belsize Park. Where do you live? Hendon, I say. I take my cat to the vet in Belsize Park. We used to live on Haverstock Hill, he says. I grow silently desperate, thinking that Roger will be gone in four days and all we do is have these dead-end conversations. Suddenly, Roger says, Once John and I were picking blackberries in Oxford in my grandmother's garden, we tried an experiment to prove the existence of God because the grandparents had been converting us. We were about four and seven, I think. We kept muttering abuse to the Holy Ghost to see if the wrath of God would come down. The neighbours heard and told us. I've never been so embarrassed in my life. My grandfather tried to make us pray for forgiveness. I wouldn't do it. I couldn't. Isn't praying embarrassing, I say. Isn't it excruciating? At least C of E's do it with a book so there's an end, Roger says. Quakers go on forever when the spirit moves them. Our headmaster was a Quaker. He gives me another handful of berries. Pentecostals do it to a Wurlitzer, I say. Get moved, I mean. I heard them on the radio. I walk six feet in the air for noticing that I have made Roger laugh. As we walk back to the house, as I try not to break a leg in my silly shoes, I think admiringly that I have taken berries from the hand of one who does not balk at performing experiments upon the Almighty. It's just, have you ever felt, I, like, the only, honestly, I want to compare it to Georgia Nicholson. That's the only other book where oh, wow, I read it. And I'm like, that's it, yeah, I know, but it's like, that's exactly what it's like having conversations with boys you have crushes on when you're 18. And you're just like, I've got to say something. And you're just like, I used to live near Hendon. I, 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 I take my to, cat to Belsize Park. <laughs> I take my cat to the vet in Belsize Park. Is such a perfect thing. I was like, why did I even say that? What do I? <laughs> what do I? And it's like, it's this beautiful thing because that, that is like, they have this romance that goes on for like, I'm going to say a couple of years maybe. And, um, and, and the whole time of it, he's like, that, this part with the blackberries is basically the only nice moment of that romance. And the entire. And it's not even that nice. No, it's not it's even just that nice. Her. They're never really very happy with one another. And she's just constantly no, and... trying to please him and trying to get in, get access into his world and into his heart. And she's just never allowed in. And she, he doesn't even like her very much. And he's always having sex with her in horrible places. There's a bit where she says, if Roger could have screwed me on a bed of nails, he would have done it. And that's the thing. It's, it's like, and he's like this person who's like completely like so married to the idea of like rebelling against his parents and his parents are so sensual and so sensory. And like, it's like, he won't even let himself enjoy sex because that's the thing his parents do, you know? Whereas Jonathan is just like all over it. There's a bit where Jonathan takes it to the cinema because Jacob says, Roger, take Catherine to the cinema. Roger won't do it because then Jonathan might, because then Jacob might twig that he and Catherine are sleeping together. Yeah. And so Jonathan ends up doing it, driving illegally someone else's car without a license because Jacob is so obsessed with the idea that someone should take Catherine to the cinema because he's like, why are neither of my sons sleeping with this woman? <laughs> and they go to the cinema. And oh, I know why we started talking about the cinema in the first place because of because they go to the cinema, Catherine's a grown-up, mm-hmm. and in the cinema are loads of Jonathan's enemies from school who are just like, ah, oh, you know, that fag Jonathan Goldman's here with a girl. What What's going on? Oh, yeah. And they start throwing things at them. And then Catherine's just like, what's, what's happening? I, it's, yeah, it's that thing, that, that shifting between worlds thing, being like, I get taken to Italian restaurants by men in their 30s and I go to university. And now here I am with a 15-year-old at the cinema getting like popcorn thrown at me. Like, what? It's like this weird shifting world Which thing. is exactly what it's like to be a teenage girl. 
Yeah, and specifically that eighteen, like seventeen to nineteen gap of like very much, and it was very much, very much my experience. So you know, as I didn't meet the Goldmans, but I met a lot of people and lots of people who seemed to me to have excitingly bohemian lives, mm-hmm. and that thing of being like, oh, I'm a grown up, like particularly with men who were older. Yeah, like, oh, I'm out to dinner with a man who's 34. This is incredible. <laughs> and it's that, that thing, that thing that every like, single what? woman, the whole every single woman falls into the road of, no matter how many women do it, is that thing of like, I'm 18 out with a 35 year old or a 30 year old or whatever. I must be the most sophisticated 18 year old there's ever been. When the reality is, he is the most fucking infantile pervert person that's ever lived. <laughs> do you know what I mean? It's amazing, isn't it? Because definitely. I had heard people in their late 20s and early 30s talking, as we are talking now, about men in their 30s going out with with girls in their late teens. And I was just like, oh, that must suck for those girls. But for me, the most mature teenager in the world. God, it's why it's so good that Catherine eventually chucks in Roger Goldman. Or she doesn't. Like, eventually Roger dumps her. No, sorry, I've got completely muddled. Why it's good... I think that John Millet essentially just has to fade into the background. Yeah, yeah. There's no sense of like, oh, the deep romance between Catherine and John Millet. There's just a sense of like, these things happen. Very much this is a book where it's like, ugh, bad things happen. What are you going to do? It's like there's a very, the middle of this book when she's in Italy is Mm -hmm. profoundly traumatic. It should be. If it was any other writer, it would be the crux of her life and the thing that everything revolved around and came back to. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't know how we do spoilers on this podcast, but eh, we people have read the book. Yeah. Um, I'm going to say something vaguely spoilerish now because I think it's important that we address it. She has a baby with Michelle. Michelle? Michelle? Yeah. I don't know how you say his name. I would say she Michelle, has a baby. yeah. Um, Michelle, the, mar- the divorced fascist, he's much older than her. He's got two little boys who are very bored by her and she is very bored by them. She gets pregnant. He tries to force her into having an abortion by buying her a mink coat that he then makes her give to a homeless woman to try and pressure her into having an abortion. She won't have an abortion. She has the baby on her own and then the baby dies. Yeah, it's just caught death, isn't she it? Is, yeah, she is so happy to have this baby. She loves this baby so much and then the baby dies. And and also, not only did the baby die, but her, her labour is extremely traumatic. It's like she's, yep, she has she's a in hospital labor. for days, all that kind of stuff. Like she's, she, she refers, like Jonathan Goldman later refers to her as like your patchwork fanny. Because <laughs> she's all no scarred down sex. there. Yeah. There is no more tender sex scene in history than Jonathan and Catherine having sex for the first time. It's lovely. It's she so has lovely. just had, she's like, three months out from this terrible labor like two months like a month two months after the death of her baby and she's so vulnerable and all he does is love her yeah he doesn't and like you know and and it's not like it's very sexy he's very like i must have sex with you or i will die i mean i think he literally says that in (laughs) much more graphic terms that i really hate to repeat um but it's very sexy but he's also just like let's like I must have said and it's, it's just so lovely it's so tender and he's so nice to her and he's such a contrast to Roger who inexplicably she still kind of has a thing for yeah it's that thing of like never quite it's a never quite getting over your first love or your first heartbreak thing right the person who and I think everybody feels that way in a sense like definitely the first person who dumped me I still like practice conversations with in my head even though I've <laughs> fucking no clue where they are now um, and I'm with a much much nicer man but I. But yeah, look, but it's this thing of like, not only is he her first heartbreak and he's awful to her, but as I said before, this kind of thing where everything that she doesn't like about herself is completely personified in Roger's rejection of her. Of like, he thinks that she's really facile because she's just really into like nice things and having a nice time. And he just thinks that's so base. He finds her very base. And he, he, he is finds, so. Yeah associates her with his parents so much who are who are like both in this lovely thing that you never see anywhere else which is like they're so intellectual and cultured but they also are so base um and i really just wanted to read this bit from very early on in the book when she meets him for the first time um hang on i'm just trying to find it 
Um, so this happens when she arrives at the house for the first time and Jane, who already has five children, is pregnant with another child. Um, and uh, so John says, Hey, Jake, your wife is pregnant. What's the matter with you people? We like fucking, Jacob says. The word drops like a rock onto my uninitiated sensibilities, but does nothing to shake his wife's composure or John's. Don't be evasive, John says. I want to know what's the matter with you. Four children I accept is perhaps not an intolerable number, but I can't appreciate that nobody could have predicted twins. Oh, sorry. And I can appreciate that nobody could have predicted twins. But six? Why do you have six children? Jacob won't be drawn, sensing perhaps a degree of unwitting prurience in John's insistence. I like to get her knickers down, he says. I like her, for Christ's sake. She's my lawful wife. And it just kind of goes on like this. And like it goes on and it's like, and Jane is like, if you want the truth, John, she says, you won't get it from Jake. I'm pregnant because it seemed a delightful idea to him and me after we'd blown all the twins' birthday money last winter on an extravagant drunken lunch. I'm afraid it impaired our judgment. You know, it's like, it's everyone's dream of just like ha- having this like, I mean, certainly it's not everyone's dream, but certainly mine of like having this beautiful gorgeous house um that's just so full of life and energy and you have these kids who you you actually like them for who they are and they like you for who you are and you 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 and your husband just still love fucking each other all the time you know what i mean they just just such a dream they just they just like each other yeah they just she's my lawful wife for christ's sakes you know they just like each other. And there is so much of that in this book. It's a very honest book in that I was just thinking about there's so much trauma in it. Or yeah. there should be. In that she has this encounter with John Millet, who is a pervert, but then so did Jane. And later on, so will Rosie, who is a literally a baby when the book starts, which gives you some idea of John Millet's range. Yeah. And then she has this dead baby, this baby who dies. And she has this relationship with Michelle, who's a fascist and is essentially quite abusive to her. And Roger, who is just horrible. And also Jacob is a Holocaust survivor. Yeah, which is a very small part in the book. Yeah. I mean, it's a very it, small it part of those things. But... And also Roger insists on wearing... Roger insists on wearing his grandfather's hat and his grandfather was killed in the Holocaust. And everyone's like, Roger, why do you want to wear a dead man's hat? And Roger's just like, cool man <laughs> when you're ready to pop the question the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring at bluenile.com you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online choose your diamond and setting when you found the one you'll get it delivered right to your door go to bluenile.com and use promo code listen to get 50 dollars off your purchase of 500 dollars or more that's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. She is incredibly clear on when Catherine is anti-Semitic. Yeah. Catherine, not often, but sometimes just like, oh, I thought anti-Semitically. And the Goldmans themselves, Jake, Jonathan's got a very weird relationship. He's always calling his father, like, oh, you big yobbo Jew. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Constantly, constantly. They're just constantly talking about it, which I find very realistic in that it's like, these people are not woke. There is nobody woke in the book, even though they are all... Hugely compassionate. Hugely compassionate and everyone has depth. It's what we keep coming back to is that Jonathan, Jonathan Millet, John Millet is a pervert, but also you're so sad that he's dead. So there's a, Caroline and I have a house that we refer to always as John Millet's house on almost no evidence. And every time we walk past the house that we've decided is John Millet's house, I'm like, oh, poor John Millet. Poor John Millet. Poor John Millet, a fictional poet. That's how, yeah, that is how real these people are to me and how well drawn they are because it does mention at some point that like, oh, um, because we walk in Greenwich Park every day or most days when it's not 
quarantine. Um, oh, yeah. When we don't do... We, we used to walk in Greenwich Park in the days before the war. In the days before the war. Um, and it, it's mentioned in passing that he lives on Greenwich High Road. And just any time that... I don't know, I've just found... We've just found this house that we've decided is definitely his house. And that's just it. It's almost like... I almost feel like it's a family friend that we had. That were just like, ah, oh, yeah, remember when he used to live there? Do you know what I mean? That's exactly it. They're all so real to me. I think about... I can see them all. And I'm not really a very visual person. I don't think of books in terms of pictures, really. But this, I think about it so naturally in terms of pictures that it doesn't even occur to me. I'm thinking about it in terms of pictures. I can see them like I know them. I can't see Jane very clearly. But I think, honestly, because in my heart, I'm like, I am Jane. (laughs) (laughs) Because do you think you're Catherine? No. When you read this, do you feel like Catherine? No. Not at all. Because I never do. I, I always am just like, I'm on my way to Jane. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's yeah. That's the real... Yeah. And that, that whole thing of her just sort of casually giving birth on the, on the same weekend she meets her. That she just sort of has this very casual home birth. And like, there, you can you oh literally see oh. her placenta and everything. And she's just had it, you know? And this 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 is... It. Yeah. And when, she, and when Catherine goes home to her mother and she's trying so hard to say nothing about the weekend. Yeah. but I'm gonna find it because it's so good my mother had missed me that was obvious and I had not given her a thought did you have a nice time she said yes I said what did you do she said I had been deflowered in a hotel room and I had taken black breeze from the hand of a beautiful young man who played the violin and routed the holy ghost I had seen a human placenta and a newborn baby. I had learned about crochet hooks and copper clamps in the cervix and egg yolks in the soup. I had found an older woman to emulate and admire in place of my mother. I watched Ava Gardner on the telly, I said. Is that all? She said. (laughs) I went to the seaside in Brighton, I said. I missed you, she said. And then some more text I won't read. It was my professor's house, I said, loosening up excitedly. The one who interviewed me. His wife had a baby last night. She had it in the bedroom. It got born in their bed. Between the lines of what I said, my mother read the message. The message was rejection and it made her hostile. What next? She said tightly. When you get to having a baby, you'll realise the place to have it is in hospital. And... There's there's a bit that just towards the end of that passage as well, where it's like... um, her mom, her mom was just very prudent about everything. It's just like, well, shouldn't you have left when you knew that the baby was coming? And there's this lovely line where it's like, mothers are always afraid that you don't know how to act with your own friends. You know, that thing of like, she's so afraid that Catherine's going to commit some kind of like, um, I don't know, some faux pas of like this like very strict middle class politeness while she's with other people. And it's so constraining, you know, it, it feels so airless, everything in that house. It does. And then there's this line just in the middle of the description of the airless house where Catherine says, well, the, you know, the eye voice says, my mother would have gone to the ends of the earth if I was dying. And once she did. Oh, yeah. And like, she loves her mum. And like, her mum is this, her mum has this very small life. And yet Catherine loves her because she's her mother. Mm-hmm. And, and because she loves Catherine. And I feel... That's the, it's just a book about loving people despite all their flaws and because of all their flaws and in all their weird, rich human complexity. And it's just so much about kind of like urges and passion and sort of the kind of untamable side of yourself as well. Like there's this wonderful bit I always think about um, where she's talking about her relationship with Michel and about how he's so kind of weird and passionate and violent and strange and he always thinks that he's that she's cheating on him he thinks like, there's this part where like she just misses Jonathan Goldman when like she's out somewhere with a friend and she comes home and she finds out that Jonathan Goldman was there waiting for her but then moved on again and then like you know Michelle goes crazy because like who like who is this Jew who's come to see you because he's a, a horrible fascist and everything and um this this bit where she like almost you spend like 35, 40 pages with their relationship and it seems fucking nuts. And there's this bit where she's just like, I know this sounds like it was hard to deal with, but actually like he never tried to change me. And she makes this wonderful reference to the taming of the shrew um, where she's like, 
the woman, the girl in Taming of the Shrew never becomes tamed. What she gets it to do, what she gets to do is she rejects the sort of humdrum existence that her, her um, father and sister put on her. And what she gets to do is like do mad mental things with Petruchio and then leaves Venice a hundred crowns richer. Do you know what I mean? She's like, it's true. And she gets to be funny. Yeah. 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 Yeah, but that's, I think, really, it's a really, I'm really glad you brought this up because I think that is one of the most telling things of Catherine's voice. Like, she's obsessed with clothes. You know, she loves sex. They have so much sex. Everyone in this book is having sex all the time. All they're thinking about it. Catherine is always thinking about sex. And yeah, she's also always thinking about, like, this is just like the Taming of the Shrew, which, by the way, no one understands as well as me because I am very smart. Yeah, yeah. And like, but that's very Jacob's attitude, isn't it? There's a bit where he, so he interviews her for the position. And this is, also complicates the John Millet thing because he comes home and tells Jane that he's met a brilliant undergraduate who he's going to enjoy teaching who also has the best length since Marlene Dietrich. God. Which, you know, and also, like, they're all perving on teenage girls all the time. Yeah. And they're just doing it. And that's it. <laughs> and it doesn't make any of them worse characters. No. They're just very real. They're just they're very real, very vivid, very important people to me. And... Yes, they do things that are not good and they say things that are not nice and they behave in ways that are not nice, but they are my friends and I love them. <laughs> and I don't think there's any, I don't think there's any way that a book can feel better than that. Yeah. The best thing a book can be is to be like, here are your friends and then you love them. Yeah, yeah. And it, it is that thing of like, because the book isn't, as you were saying about the structure earlier on, about it being like, two thirds of like here is just like me being in love with his family and then there's like a quite like it just kind of zooms forward and it's like here's me spending 12 years in Italy and then here's what it's like once I got home from Italy and her kind of finding her way back and to also the, the tenses shift that's and in the only sense, section written in the present tense is when she comes back from Italy which is like it's like it's chapter 30 38 yeah <laughs> It's it's weird. When the book suddenly shifts into the present tense and it's like, and then I came home from Italy. And then she went to the psychiatric ward. Yes, like because she's so fucked up she's from in a psychiatric her ward because she's so fucked up from her, her child, yeah. Which is reasonable. Reasonable. And then the reason she gets to leave the psychiatric ward is because they're trying to get them to knit dish towels and she's like, if you give me another pin, I'll do you a cable knit border. And the psychiatrist is like, go home. <laughs> go home. If you're all bored of if you're bored of knit dish towels and you're already trying to explain to me how to do a cable knit cable knit border, yeah. you could go home and do knitting at home. Yeah. It's so weird how like I'm just thinking like there's that phrase that they often use in fan fiction, which is like with the the Mary Sue character, right? Like a character who comes in and is like not only are they beautiful, but they're also smart and they're also good at everything. And like, why is it that like Catherine avoids the Mary Sue thing without, despite occupying so many of that, those traits. Because she's real and she's kind of stupid. Like stupid in ways like, like we can all see that Roger's never going to be nice to her. Yeah. I think it's just because she's real. She feels like a person who I love very much, but she's not me and I don't want to be her. Yeah. Mary Sue is where it's like, and you feel like the author wants to be that character and you don't feel like Barbara Trapito wants to be Catherine you feel like Barbara Trapito loves Catherine yeah yeah as we all love Catherine she's so good she's so smart and so funny so but she doesn't want to be her she's just a real person I feel about Catherine much the same way I feel about you (laughs) my dear dear friend very smart very beautiful very good at stuff very interesting life but like I don't want to be you I just want to be near you and hear about your adventures that's the sweetest thing anyone's ever said do you know what i mean though like <laughs> i feel like Catherine would be an excellent addition to this podcast i feel like Catherine would be an she'd excellent be a great addition guest she would be a great guest in real life yeah she'd have really smart things to say about books and sex and i'd love that i'm very yeah i think she would come on a podcast really i can't really see her doing it <laughs> no if we could convince but- her yeah but she would be a good friend. She would fit very nicely into our friendship group. And I think that's why she's not a Mary Sue, because you're like, well, she's just another person I know. Yeah. Can I can I read a bit from the book that always makes me cry? Mm, yeah, but I don't want to cry. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know why it does. Um, so it's basically where she's... Like, Jonathan is going is, is finished school. He's going touring Europe. Um, 
Roger has broken her heart. Catherine has decided that she's going to move to Italy because she can't stand being around the Goldmans anymore because it's too painful for her. And um, and she says, you must, you must know that I'll miss you all terribly. Jane has been very important to me, Jake, I said, tears welling in my eyes. Tell her, tell her that our kitchen has been my other university. Jacob laughed. I will, he said. I fell upon his hairy chest and cried like hell. Jacob kept patting my shoulder. If you're in trouble ever, you'll reverse the charge on the phone, he said. It's an easy thing, Catherine. Pick up the phone, yeah? Reverse the charge? I'll remember that, I said. Good, he said. And don't you let any of those Catholic bloody foreigners grind you down. When I next saw Jacob, the hair in his chest had turned completely white. Oh, God. And it just murders me, because it's like this thing of like... And he's such a kind of cavalier person. He's not like quick to show his affection for people. And he just the fact just grabs someone who he now at this point sees as a daughter to be like, if you're ever in trouble, you will call. And that awful thing of like, she does get in trouble and she doesn't call. And by the time that she's well enough to be able to reach out for them again, they've moved house. And she can't, and like the idea, and there's this bit where she's like, the, the the Goldmans don't move. I move. And then I come back to them and voice my insecurities on them. Like, how could they move? And she has to, like, go through several um things in order to track them down again. And the idea that, like, people who could be so close to you could just fall away. It's almost like a war happens in the middle of the book. It almost feels like a war book where it's like, oh, and then World War Two happened and we didn't yeah. see each other for 10 years. Do you know what I mean? But it's not. It's just yeah, life. Yeah, it feels like that. But nothing happened. It's just life. And that's the thing about this book. And I think the weird structure makes that so much more important the weird structure makes it feel like these things happen these things happen and then I went to Italy and not much happened in Italy for eight years and then I got pregnant and stuff happened again and then I came home yeah except it wasn't home I went back to my mother's which was still suburban but also now I loved it more because I had had this traumatic thing and she had helped me yeah. and I realized that she had loved me and also I wasn't 18 anymore The more I think about this, the more it really is exactly Laurie from Little Women of like, I was in love with one of you, I left to go to Europe, and I came back and I was in love with the younger one. (laughs) It's very true. Yeah. But I like these much more than the Marches. I I love Little Women, don't shout at me. But I love the Goldmans. I love their dirt. I love the way that the... I love the way that Jane and Jacob kind of fight, but also still fancy each other. I love their sort of mass of children yeah i love how casual they are with how in love they are does that make sense yeah. nothing will threaten their, their romance they're in it for the long haul yeah they're so- and you get the sense john miller has tried to threaten that marriage so much so consistently over such a long period of time like basically the only reason he brings Catherine to that house is because he wants to like he's kind of trying to threaten Jane with a kind of a younger model and be like, maybe, maybe she'll sort of get jealous and kind of come to me somehow. Do you know what I mean? He wants to win her and it's, she's unwinnable, you know? She's unwinnable. But that doesn't mean that Jane and Jacob have a perfect marriage because there's a bit where Catherine realizes what a toll being married to Jacob must be. Yeah. Yeah. On Jane. So the book opens with Jacob's preface Oh, can we we just read the first bit? It's so good. It's my favourite first page of any book, I think. Chapter one. Since I have no other, I use as preface Jacob's preface, which I read sneakily 15 years ago when it lay on the Goldman's breakfast table amid the cornflakes. I cannot in good conscience give the statutory thanks to my wife, it says for helpful comments on the manuscript, patient reading of drafts or corrections to proofs, because Jane did none of these things. She seldom reads, and when she does, it is never a thing of mine. Going by the lavish thanks to wives, which I find in the prefaces to other men's books, I deem myself uniquely injudicious in having married a woman who refuses to double as a high-grade editorial assistant. Since custom requires me to thank her for something, I thank her instead for the agreeable fact of her continuing presence, which in 20 years I have never presumed to expect. And then and then it just says, it was a marriage characterised, among other things, by the fact that Jacob was alternately infuriated and enchanted by Jane's resolutely playing the country wife. There is no doubt that it influenced the paths that I chose to tread. So literally, she says on page one, she's like, I've spent my life trying to emulate this marriage and with good reason, you know? Yeah, and then, but the thing is, when you look at the end of the book, where she really... She digs through that preface. And 
if you haven't read the book, stop listening for this bit. Just take your headphones out and just do something else for like 40 seconds. Um, but she says, this is the last paragraph of the book. Yeah. It's devastating. I've thought of times of Jacob's preface, which so impressed me, because since then, Jonathan has given me a mention in his own. Jacob's is, of course, a pretty piece of dishonesty through and through. As always, he has a cake and he eats it. He man it manages, under the guise of a pretty compliment, to take shots both at his fellow academics and at Jane. What he is really saying is that his colleagues have inferior wives, poor humdrum creatures who edit and annotate, while his own wife is a goddess who is above such things. What he is saying also is, damn it, Janie, why the hell can't you he be a proper wife to me? The greatest dishonesty of all lies in his assertion that he never, pre he never presumed to expect her continuing presence. Of course he did. He took it for granted, as he took for granted that the milk and the guardian came round at breakfast. Jonathan's mention of me, by contrast, says only, my thanks to Kath, whose earnings have kept me in socks. <laughs> this, this is a book about marriage. It's a book about what a marriage can be and what relationships, exclusively, I think, between men and women can be. It's not interested in other kinds of relationships, really. It's interested in the romantic relationship between men and women and yeah. all the permutations of those. Because, you know, Jane and Catherine's friendship is enduring, but it's not really important because for all of them, it's how do you relate to men? How do women relate to men and how do men relate yeah. to women yeah. with sex in the way? Is that Harry Met Sally thing of men and women can't be friends? Oh, it's very when Harry Met Sally. Yeah, you're dead It's right. very when Harry Met Sally. It feels very Nora Ephron-y to me. Yeah. It's like a very oh, English God. Nora Ephron. And the whole book is concerned with this question of really, what's a marriage? What's a marriage? What's a relationship? How do we have one that is functional? Yeah, and how can you be in a marriage and stay yourself? Do you know what I mean? How, how, like, how, how can you be true to any sense of the self if you are in a unit? Do you know what I mean? And it's a question yeah, people I have think... been asking for hundreds of years, you know? Yeah. For me, I know you've not read Dorothy Says is Gordy Knight, but for me it feels like a cross between Gordy Knight and When Harry Met Sally, which is what <laughs> I would put on the cover if they asked me to do it on the cover, which they won't because Rachel Cusk has done that. And <laughs> she's quite important. <laughs> But if, if they're trying to re-jack it, Brother of the More Famous Jack, I will happily sell it to people who love Nora Ephron and uh, Golden Age Detective Stories. Oh, very good. Very good. Uh, I would love for... like I, I honestly don't really want a, a, a film or TV adaptation of this book, no. but I, if it were, I think it would be worth Nora Ephron coming back from the dead for. I think she would just get it. Do you oh, know what I mean? if, if Nora Ephron could come back from the dead, that would be fine. <laughs> I would like that. Would that would be fine. It would yeah. be fine for me. But who would you even cast? Catherine's quite easy to cast. I mean, for me, um, Jacob is always Alfred Molina, who is he's the the Count in Chocolat. Oh yeah, and I'm gonna Count Google. The... I'm I'm gonna Google these people because I never know what anyone looks like. Yeah. Um, I guess for Catherine, like she's probably a little too old. Oh, now, that is like... Jacob. I know, right? Oh, that's Jacob. There he is, Alfred Molina. I co-signed this casting. Yeah. Um, for Catherine, I would do like a, a, a young Carrie Mulligan, I think. Yeah, great. Beautiful, smart, clothes, yeah. like wears clothes well. Yeah, and and also kind of, it follows a similar pattern to that movie and education as well, which she's very It good does. In. Yeah, it I does. love I really that movie. like that film. I really like that movie also, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then for like, for... Jane, probably because I'm thinking about education now, Rosamund Pike, I think, would be really good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can see that with dark hair. Yeah. And I think for um, for Roger, I would do that guy who played the oldest Stark on Game of Thrones, Richard Madden, I think. Yeah, yeah. Oh, God, I kind of want it to happen now, even though I know people would hate it and like complain about there not being enough oh, plot maybe, beats. Maybe I'll write it. Maybe, maybe I'll you'll it. write it. Maybe sure. that'll be my lockdown project is trying to write a screenplay for Brother of the More Famous Jack. A book, it would have to be telly, I think though, because... Yeah, telly, definitely. But then, if you think about When Harry Met Sally, that's a weird disjointed timeline as well. It's that's broken up true. all the way through with interviews. Like, that makes no sense. If you yeah, explained right. Harry, you When watch. Harry Met Sally to someone who'd never seen When Harry Met Sally. Yeah. It actually, and the more I think about it, the more I think it's got a really Nora Ephron sensibility and just like, ah, these things happen, I guess. Like, uh, You've Got Mail, a weird book where it's just like, and then you were in love, even though he sabotaged your career and also your shop closed. So, <laughs> well, the whole 
narrative thrust was you trying to keep your shop open, but you lost to capitalism in the end. But it's okay because you get a new. But it's job. okay. One of my most unpopular opinions is that I prefer you've got mail to when Harry met Sally, and I'm not going to apologize for it. Okay, well, Ella Bridger, you're currently locked inside your house, as I am mine. Um, do you have anything that you're plugging that people can get on Kindle or deliver to their home? <laughs> uh, my book, Midnight Chicken, and other yes. recipes worth living for, is available on Kindle, and you should buy it. Uh, if you want to see some of the recipes first, I've put all of the store cupboard ones up on my Instagram, which is just my name. Uh, I have a poetry book called Set Me on Fire, which is other people's poems, not mine, which is why I can plug it cheerfully and happily. And there is a whole section in there called Poems for the End of the World, some of which are also on my Instagram. You should follow me on Instagram, obviously, for all the hot content. <laughs> um, am I plugging anything else? Car, am I? Um, no, just being indoors a lot, to be honest. Just being, stay, remaining indoors. Remaining um, indoors. From- I, I now have to, I've reached that point of the calendar where I have to start plugging my second book, Scenes of a Graphic Nature, which for the eagle-eyed listeners and readers will notice a very interesting allusion to Brother of the More Famous Jack in the acknowledgement section. I'll say no more. It's dedicated to me, Carl. Come on. You've got to put that yeah. in there. I mean, that's in there too. Yeah. This has been Sentimental Garbage and I've been Karen O'Donoghue. You can follow me on Twitter at Zaraline, that's C-Z-A-R-O-L-I-N-E, or email me by the podcast at ZaralineO'Donoghue at gmail.com. This has been a Justice for Dumb Women podcast. Thanks to Harry Harris for the jingle, Gavin Day for the logo, and Acast for the recording space. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com